Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here. Um, and we are, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, welcome. And we are uh, at week four in a series through the book of Proverbs, the first uh, nine chapters. So welcome if you are, uh, have been with us. Hopefully we've been able to continue along reading a proverb a day for the month of January, just to continue to create the habit of being in God's word every single day and, and getting prepared for what God has through his wisdom, through his word. And so today, as we are going to be... Uh, Entering into the fourth week, I, you know, I just want to signal ahead that we're going to probably talk about some tough things uh, today, um, and so uh, some things that might be a little uncomfortable, but some things that I love how God's Word doesn't shy away from things that are uncomfortable, but instead God's Word leans into it, speaks truth and wisdom into it, and helps us to live coming out of where we're going to be and what it is that God has for us today. And so uh, what I want to start off with is, you know, we're talking about temptation today, and so I know that there's probably about 14% of you who are tempted to leave now. Just fight against it. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> No, so we're going to dive into temptation. So here's what I want to start. As we hear that, and that could be a, a wide range of things. For me, and I've shared this before, um, one of the bigger temptations I have uh, is when it comes to food. I love it. And so um, I remember just recently we went to uh, New Year's Eve. We went to uh, some friend's house, and they had like a spread where they had like tacos, and, and they had um, like different cookies and things, but then they had like dino nuggets, not just for kids, they're for me too. Um, and then someone came in a little bit later and had like just these, uh, just this like tray of noodles. And I don't know what they were, but they were fantastic. And I think I went back and legitimately probably had about like five smaller plates. Cause in my mind, five smaller plates, you walk off the calories to get there, right? It's not true. But, um, this idea of like when I get around food, it's almost like there's an on switch and it's really hard to find the off switch. And, and when you think about temptations, like, you know, we could, we could share that food feels like that's on the lower end of like temptation. Like that's, that's still a temptation, but it's like, oh, it's not that bad. But here's the thing is that like many temptations, it doesn't seem bad at the onset, but if we get too caught up to it and we always say yes to it, then there'll be negative consequences and there'll be negative ramifications. So for example, I turned 35 uh, in July of last year, I'll turn 36 this year, and my dad had his first heart surgery, a triple bypass at the age of 36. And we had... Um, I have an uncle who passed away uh, at a younger age because of heart disease. And so, so when I talk about like food, it's easy, like food, I love food, I wanna eat noodles and dino nuggets. Like yeah, I could joke about that, but there's the very real side on the other side of it that if I always say yes to eating food, that there will be a time when I'll have to experience, you know, hopefully not that, but it's in my family and there's consequences to it. And, you know, yesterday we had, I don't know if you guys do this on the weekend sometimes for lunches. It's just like, hey, what's left over from the week? And we'll just have some of the leftovers. And so uh, leftovers last, yesterday, um, there were like some tacos and there was some uh, leftover mac and cheese that Elise had because if there was mac and cheese and I was there, there would be no leftovers. But, uh, you know, there's all these things and we had some really good food. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to have this. I'm going to have that. And Steph just looks at me. She's like, honey, you say you want to lose weight and then you just want to eat all, the, all of it. I'm like... Uh-huh. Like, is that not a thing? No, but, you know, she, she sincerely is like, honey, how do I, you know, I don't know what to do because you say you want to lose weight and you'll take some steps, but then when food comes, it's, you just want to eat. And again, maybe for you, 
You know, we're talking, again, we're going to talk about some tough things. If you look, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5. We're going to read all 23 verses of it. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 5 on page 990, 990 in our church Bible, uh, what you're going to see is it's a warning against adultery. And so that's a, that's a heavy topic. And we're going to talk about the temptation that we see, and, but we're going to take some truths out of Proverbs 5 that talks about a warning against adultery, but we're going to talk about how those truths apply to various different types of temptation that we all may face. See, when it comes to, your temptation may not be food, but it may be to possessions, to wanting, always wanting more. It may be to performance, to always try to be the best. And so be willing to sacrifice relationships with your family because you're working too hard or to sacrifice relationships with coworkers because you want to one-up them. Maybe you, you have a temptation to just always be popular. And so you'll, you'll fall into the wayside of sin because you'll go wide as the road that leads to destruction because you won't say no to something or someone because you don't want to be thought of differently or less than. And so we have these times where all of us are tempted in some way or another. But here's what temptation does. One of the things that temptation does is that it causes us to look at that which allures us short term and calls us to follow that at the cost of what will endure long-term. It causes us to think, okay, I just want the highlight reel of what my sin is gonna look like. Like, listen, I get to have a bunch of noodles and dino nuggets and tacos, that's a win. But what I don't see always is on the other side of it of saying, yeah, but if you make that kind of choice every single day of your life, then you'll lose your health. All of us have some sort of temptation and all of us, need to recognize that we can't just give in to the highlight reel. That we think, oh, this is what it's going to look great. It's going to be easy. It's going to be fun. No one's going to be hurt. But that's never true. People do get hurt, even the sins that we think no one knows about. People, we think it might be easy, but the road is far harder in the end. And we think that it doesn't affect others, but it absolutely does. So our main point for today inside your notes is that living wisely means saying no to temptation now to say yes to God's blessing later. Living wisely means saying no to temptation now so we can say yes to his blessing later. Like I said, we're going to be in Proverbs 5, but before we read, let's, uh, I would ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for who you are, Lord. I thank you for your love for us. God, I pray for each person that's in this room and each person that's listening online later Lord, I pray that as we talk about heavy things and difficult things, we talk about temptation, which is the kind of thing that we want to hide from everyone around us. Lord, I pray, God, that we would not check out during this sermon. God, I pray that you would speak to us in a way that we know is you speaking. I pray that we would be able to um, lean into you and, and remember that Being tempted in and of itself isn't the sin because Jesus was tempted. He knew what it was like, but it's what we do in the temptation. So God, may you help us to turn to you. May we say no to the temptation now to say yes to your blessing later. And God, I pray that walls would be broken down this morning, that eyes, ears, and hearts would be opened, that you would speak. God, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I said, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5, and so the first part of your notes underneath the, uh, the main points has some blank spots, so for that we're going to say saying no to temptation. That's your first header there, um, and saying no to temptation. 
Again, we kind of mentioned it briefly, but temptation causes us to want to give up what endures long-term for what allures short-term. And it gives us the highlight reels of only the good things that can happen, but not always the ramifications of our choices. And so what I want to do is take the first part underneath, the first note there is that kind of giving a, a, a verbiage to some of the things of temptation and sin. It says this, we sin when we act on the temptation to fulfill a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. We fulfill a legitimate, we try to fulfill a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. Let's, let's give an example of what that means. That when I talk about food, I open up about food. Being hungry in and of itself is not a sin, right? That's a legitimate thing. Our bodies were created for dino nut, I mean food. And so uh, our bodies were created to eat. And so there's a, there's a illegitimate way, an illegitimate way to try to fulfill that legitimate desire. And that's gluttony right? It's to keep going back and forth. And, you know, literally in Proverbs, as I'm reading it, it talks about how if you're in the company of kings or rulers, that it is better for you to put a knife to your throat than to be able to be giving way to gluttony. I mean, gluttony is something that we think is a small thing, but it really is. It is a sin, right? So that's an illegitimate way to fulfill a legitimate desire. Another one is working. We might say, oh, work, you know, work came after the fall. No, no, no. Work came before the fall of man. God gave Adam a good work to do, to till the land and be fruitful and to be multiply and to, to work the garden. The result of the fall of man was that work was hard. But work in and of itself wasn't a sin. Work in and of itself isn't bad. But our temptation and a legitimate desire to work, to put our hands to things or our minds to things that God has gifted us to do, there's an illegitimate way to do that, which is to overwork to the point where you sacrifice relationships, that you work so hard that you start to lie to your kids and say you're going to be somewhere when you never intend to. That you start to put the value of money or possessions or your role in your company higher than the people who know you and love you. That you will step on people who are in your, your um, organization in order to look better than them. And you overwork. And that's an illegitimate way to overwork and put other people down is an illegitimate way to fulfill a legitimate desire to work. Making money, again, making money can be legitimate. There can be great things. We want to be able to see rewards when we do a good job. It starts from gold stars when we're kids to money when we're older and gold watches when we retire. I mean, we want to be able to receive that. But if we have all money and we see that as our opportunity for greed, for our opportunity to hold on and to hoard things, that's an illegitimate way to fulfill a legitimate desire. And when it comes to intimacy and sex, those are things that are legitimate things that have been created by God and they are good things. But our culture gives numerous ways in which people try to fulfill that legitimate desire in illegitimate ways. That we see it through the overwhelming saturation of pornography. We see it when it comes to the, the idea of adultery. We see it when it comes to homosexual sex. We see it when it comes to sex before marriage. We see it when it comes to lust. See, we see all these things, and we can't look at that list and say that, oh, there's one that's worse than all the others, because all of us have fallen short. All of us have struggled in one way or another. And there's a legitimate way, which we'll get to later, there's a legitimate way to experience this legitimate desire that God has given us. But what it shows us here is this idea that the world wants us to see illegitimate ways to fulfill legitimate desires. The world is constantly tempting us. And so 
What does the Bible have to say? What does Proverbs 5 say? The context is that this is Solomon speaking to his son, or that's the words like, my son, listen to my teaching, as we'll hear. The first nine chapters is kind of where we've taken the, the, the majority of our sermon passages uh, for the series through Proverbs. And you cannot do a series through the first nine chapters of Proverbs without talking about adultery, talking about intimacy, talking about sex. Why? Because it's all of chapter five, over half of chapter six, and all of chapter seven. See, it's an important thing for people to be taught wisdom about it because the culture is going to teach us a ton of things that are foolish and unwise. So we need to lean into uncomfortable things because God doesn't shy away from them in his word. May we not shy away from them when we study his word as well. So here's what Proverbs 5, 1 through 4 talk about. It says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous women drop honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. There's going to be a few words that we're going to look out throughout our study today. And, and one of those words is the, word, is the contrast of uh, the word lips here. How temptation that the mouth of the, the adulterous woman drips honey, that her lips drip honey, and it seems so sweet. But in the end, it really only gives us lip service to true satisfaction. So we have a choice of whose lips are we listening to, the adulterous woman, which I'll go into what that means later, or do we look at the lips of knowledge and discretion, and that we'd be able to hear the words of wisdom? We will follow one of those two ideas. Which one will we choose? We start to see here, verse 3, the adulterous woman. In the Hebrew, that, that's the idea of a strange woman. It's an idea of the other woman. And here's where the context or the contrast of strange is, is um, I think, especially meaningful, is that it talks about the, the strange woman. What's the opposite of someone who's a stranger? Someone you know, right? And if we look at the context of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, when it comes to the idea that what word do they often use to describe the intimacy between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, it's that they knew each other, that they know one another. And so the opposite of that person that you are in a marriage relationship with husband and wife, man and woman, that person is the one you know. So anyone on the outside of that who is trying to cause you to stumble is someone who is strange, someone who's a stranger or the other person. And so we look at this context here because to be clear, in here when we say it says, my son, avoid the adulterous woman. But we need to take a step back and we need to acknowledge that the temptations that are being discussed that we're going to dive into today are not temptations that are only experienced by young men. They're also not only propagated by like an evil, strange other woman. That our culture, young and old, male and female, are bombarded with temptation, bombarded with these things. And so it's not something where we just say, oh, you know, oh, it's, it's Eve's fault. It's the woman's fault that this happens. No, no, no. If you look back at the fall of man, we've talked about this before. Eve fell because Adam didn't stand up in the moment. He was right there with her, and he rejected being able to stand up and fight for his wife. See, we cannot blame one or the other. All of us fall into it. All of us can be tempted. And so we don't just say, oh, it's her fault and he's the victim. No, no, no. We are all at fault. And if we're not careful, we can all be victims to it. Now, verse four, I want to give a word picture to this. In the end, it talks about, sorry, verse three, 
uh, the second part. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. How many of you have ever had a chance to pet um, a shark or a manta ray or any, like any sort of sea creature? Can I just get a show of hands real quick? All right, a decent amount of you. And so when you think about that, maybe you've been told this, maybe hopefully, hopefully you knew. Um, if you pet like a shark from head to tail, it's smooth, right? It's like something that's really smooth. It's, there's not a problem. If you pet it from tail to head, the skin is created in such a way that it's rough like sandpaper and it can actually cut you if you, if you pet too hard. That's something that seems to be smooth in one way. If we take it the other way, it can be harmful. The words of a, the, of the, from the lips of the other who's trying to cause adultery or temptation or whatever it may be can seem smooth at first, like head to tail, but the reality is, is the exact opposite. It's more like going from tail to head where it's sharp and bitter and it causes harm even though it promises joy. It promises joy but it doesn't work out. Now see, we're gonna to go to verses five through eight, but before I address the point in your notes, I need to remind us of something. It's not just the idea that we sin when we act on the temptation to fulfill a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. It's also this reminder that we need to see how it is that we are directing our lives. That Andy Stanley has a quote that I actually mentioned just a couple weeks ago. I mentioned last year. He has this idea of the principle of the path. And the principle of the path says this, that direction, not intention, determines destination. If you've been with us for the past year, you've heard me say that a few times. And I'm going to keep saying it because I think it has the power, especially as we're looking at Proverbs, it has the power to change our lives. Why? Because I can say that I'm intending to be healthy and I intend to lose weight. But if my direction goes away from, you know, not eating and is facing eating all the time, well, then I get to a point where I'm saying, okay, I'm just going to eat a little bit more and just like one more plate. And it's not a big deal. And as much as I intend to be over there my direction is pointing me over here and this will be my ultimate destination rather than over there. The idea of recognizing that when we say, I've used the example before, if I say, hey, I want to go to Canada, but I end up on the five south, it doesn't matter how long I drive, I will never hit Canada. Even if I intended to, because it's my direction that determines my destination. So let's go to the notes now. So if the principle of the path is true inside your notes, if that is true, we must avoid the direction of temptation, not just the destination. That we cannot just say, okay, I'm just going to avoid sin, but I'm going to keep going on that road as far as I can until I get there. And then hopefully stop at the right moment. Let me read, um, let me read verses 5 through 10. Verse 5 says, Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives us thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. See, this idea of recognizing Verses 5, verse 6, and verse 8 all have verbiage about feet, about steps, and about our path. It's the direction of your life. Which direction are you going? See, 
There's a, a scene that I really wanted to show uh, today, so I'm just have to describe it. It's from uh, Star Trek, the one that came out in 2009, kind of the reboot of the new ones. Um, and the reason I wanted, I would show it, but I couldn't, is that uh, we had the, I had the clip ready to go when I checked it out, and they had a song playing in the background. I was like, I should just double check the lyrics of the song. And sure enough, there was a very inappropriate word. And so I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord, for making me not have people swear in church. So um, we ended up just, I'm just going to describe it for you. And the scene is in the very beginning. It's James Tiberius Kirk, so the captain grows up to become the, you know, the main character, one of the main characters. Uh, he's in Iowa, and he steals this fancy car, and he starts driving really fast. And so all of a sudden, he like blows by his friend, and the cop starts coming, and they have like air motorcycle cops, because, you know, future. And they end up driving, and he just keeps going really fast, really fast. And the, guy, the cop tells him pull over and he veers off to the side. When he veers off to the side, he goes on this, like, you know, this little dirt road and he's just going, you see the speedometer going like 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, and he's going incredibly fast and he can like, barely see like, between the wheel and everything. But then what he does is there's a moment in which he's driving and he blasts right through this like, barrier that shows a warning sign, but he can't read, he's going too fast. He goes right through the barrier, and then the camera pans out, and it's no longer from his perspective in the car, it's now from like a helicopter airborne perspective looking down and saying, showing us that on the other side where that road is ending is, in, is a huge canyon. And so it's this moment where he's driving, he's going really fast, and he sees it, and somehow he's like nine, and he knows how to use a stick shift and do everything, I don't know, but it's movies. But he ends up driving at the very last second. He he um, ends up like throwing it into reverse. He spins out. He opens the car door and he like flies out of the car door and like barely holds onto the edge of the chasm and the car all the way falls down to the edge. He like crawls up and he stands there and he's like looking at it and the cop is, you know, citizen, what's your name? He's like, my name is James Tiberius Kirk and we're like supposed to clap. We're like, oh, that's awesome. That's a really exciting movie scene. It's a horrible way to live your life. Right, because there's this idea of like there is a path that we're all going on and we are going 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour towards it. And here's the question that many of us ask and I addressed this uh, when I served in youth ministry because the question would be, hey, you know, how far is too far? When it comes to sexual temptation or relationships, how, how far is too far? Like, you know, like, can I, can I do this? Can I do that? And how far is too far is the wrong question. Why? Because how far is too far implies I know I'm going down the wrong road and I want to know if I'm going 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, right to the edge, when is the point where I can flip it in reverse, fly out of the car and be able to hopefully land while everything around me crashes? It's the wrong question. And so if we're asking the wrong question, how far can I go? When is too much, how much is too much time at work? How much is too much food to eat? How much is too much time online looking at things I shouldn't? How much is too much time that I'm fixing my eyes on someone that I shouldn't? How much time is too much? How far is too far? If that's the question we're asking, we are on the wrong path. And so the question we need to be asking instead is not how far is too far in hopes that like Hollywood, we can fly out and grasp onto things, but life isn't Hollywood, life is real, and in reality, that becomes a news feed that someone died in a car crash after they stole their parents' car, right? Like, we wanna cheer for that, but in reality, we need to be fearful of that lifestyle, to think that we could just go as fast and as far and as much, and then at the last second, twisted. So the wrong question is how far is too far? The right question is what path are you on? 
Is the direction of your life going the way you want it? And I don't mean the way you want it in the sense of like that you could fulfill like the American dream, the things that we think will satisfy us, right? I mean the way that God would have you live. Is it something where you're going down the path and, and what does it say? Do not turn from my ways. That's what Solomon says. He says, do not turn. Why? Because if you're listening to wisdom and you're moving forward, it's when we start to turn. It's that first step turning away from God's wisdom and God's word and living a life for him. It's that first step that puts us on the wrong path. And so then when we hear in the Old Testament, the need to repent, the word repent, we've talked about it before, is this idea of turning around. It's the idea of doing a 180. If you're on one path away from the Lord, repenting is turning around and recalibrating your life in the direction of God. And so if that's our direction. And then with that, we need to go past intention and look at the, the direction of our destination. Verses 11 through 14. How, what's another way that we see that we can be on the right path? It's by listening to the instruction that, we all know that hindsight is 2020, but if we live wisely and live according to God's word, foresight can be too. Why? Because wisdom could tell us what's going to happen if we live a certain way. Let me see this, verse 11 through 14. This is, again, Solomon talking to his son. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. See, this, this verse, this section is especially poignant a little bit because um, if we know the story of Solomon, he was the wisest man who ever lived, and yet if you compare the things that God had told kings to never do in Deuteronomy, Solomon checks every single one of them. So he's the wisest man who ever lived, but he didn't always live out of his wisdom or live his wisdom out. And, and so he's saying, he's, it's like talking to this, here's the beauty. When there are groups, small groups or, or life groups or things like that, or just times in which people of different generations can get together, do you know how beautiful it is for someone who's an older generation, who's experienced so much to have the wisdom and to be able to say, listen, son, listen, daughter, listen, someone who, you know, is... is where I was when I made mistakes. I wish I could go back and be where you are and make the different decision than I made now. I wish that I could show you this. You know why? Because in the future, the foresight is you're gonna come to ruin. It's gonna not work out. Following this path will never be the end result that you want it to be. And I wish I could just make that decision for you. And so there's beauty when generations come together, doing life together and helping change one another to make a change in this world. And so we see this idea that when it comes to God's word and his wisdom, we can trust it and we can live according to it. And we can make, when's the best time to avoid temptation? Before it ever starts. It's to get off the, stay on the right road before you're even tempted to go off of it. Do not take the path that leads to the house of the adulteress. Do not go walk near her door. Do not go and follow your feet to the steps of the path that she's leading. No, no, no. Listen to my words now so you can avoid the heartache later. Listen to what God is saying now so you can escape before the crash ever happens. So we say no to temptation, and, and I only got a few minutes left, and so I'm going to transition to the next part for the next few verses. Not just saying no to temptation for the sake of saying no, but saying no to temptation so we can say yes to God's blessing. So saying yes 
to blessing because we started off talking about how there are legitimate desires we have and there are illegitimate ways to fulfill them. So if that's what sin is, then, or one of the ways to define that is that saying yes to blessing shows us this, that we are blessed when we fulfill a legitimate desire in a godly way, in the way that he has created and designed it to be. So in your notes, we are blessed when we fulfill a legitimate desire in a godly way. Let's see how this is played out. Because if the illegitimate way in our passage here is the adulterous woman going to her steps, going to her doors, and believing that her lips that drip honey will end up turning into gall, but we still go for it anyways, the opposite of that is the beauty of intimate relationship between a husband and wife the way God has created it to be. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a grace, a loving doe, excuse me, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? See, there's a lot of analogy and illustration of water, cistern, wells, running water, flowing water, fountain. So this idea of water, this metaphor of water is being used in this section, much like it is in Song of Solomon, chapter three, I believe, to describe the intimacy and, and the fulfillment of a relationship between husband and wife, man and woman in the context of marriage. That we see the idea of the cistern in verse 15. A cistern is just this idea of, it's a man-made pit or man-made hole that water from the rain that would run off would go ahead and fall right into it and would start to fill up. So it's not like a, a well that we would think of now that's drilled so deep that the, the spring of water's underneath. It's the idea of water runoff coming in and filling up. And so when it says drink from your own cistern, it's saying, listen, this is your private relationship and you could drink deeply of the love that happens between you and your wife one-on-one. -on -one. And it says, you know, drink from the, it's going to be a running water. If you've ever been hiking or if you've ever been uh, to a place where there's stagnant water, you see the water and it's like things start to like grow in it. I was reading up about cisterns and talks about how if it's not cleaned up or not kept fresh, that then there can be, you know, feces or different animals or just things that, you know, kind of live there. But that's the contrast of what they're talking about here. Why? because he's specifically talking about in verse 15, the idea of running water. If you've ever been to a place where there's stagnant water and then you get a brook or water that flows through it, it cleans it out, it freshens it up and it makes it sweet. And so this is what it's saying. It's talking about how the relationship between a man and his wife, husband and wife, is this beautiful idea of the running water that's always going to refill itself. You're always going to find satisfaction within that relationship if you seek to serve one another, love one another in that way. But it ends up becoming something, if you have a fulfilling relationship that's yours, that doesn't need to be shared, and if it keeps growing and it's always getting replenished and refreshed, then why, why, why would you ever want to go outside the bounds of marriage to try to find your water elsewhere? It's talking about how this is the place that God has created and designed relationships to happen. In verse 19 and 20, it gives another word picture. We looked at the word picture lips. We looked at the words of paths. And now we're looking at the words of intoxicated. That this word in 19 and 20 says, may you ever be intoxicated with her love? 
And why be intoxicated with the love of another? It's this idea of intoxication could be a word of to be led astray, or it could be this idea of being so enraptured, so captivated, so intoxicated that it's almost like you're under the influence of the love of your husband or your wife. And talking about how that kind of love, that kind of intoxication, may that be the blessing that we have to experience that legitimate desire in a godly way, as opposed to trying to find intoxication with a woman who tries to speak sweet words or a man who tries to speak sweet words, but in the end is bitter as gall and in the end it leads to destruction. And it's saying, why would we ever want to find our springs of water anywhere else? See, food is a legitimate desire, and and gluttony may be the illegitimate way to do it or to fulfill it, but eating in moderation and and giving to people who are hungry, fasting to show that food doesn't own you, I mean, these are things that are legitimate ways to find the proper place for hunger in our lives. Working, working in and of itself can be a great thing, and how do we do it illegitimately? We overwork, we push over people, We, we think that we're the ones in charge of everything. A legitimate way? is to be able to find that beautiful rhythm of work in Sabbath, of working six days and resting on the seventh. Why? One, because God did it and he rested and he set the example. And two, because in Deuteronomy 5, when it explains that commandment, it talks about how because you've been set free from the slavery of Egypt. See, you and I have been set free from the slavery of thinking that we have to earn in order to get our identity. And so if we're able to take hold of that, then we recognize Sabbath, work, rest. Sabbath is the right, legitimate way to put the proper placement of work in our lives. Not to put them on the throne. Not to put food on the throne. To put God on the throne and all these come underneath his throneship. Making money can be legitimate. So instead of building wealth to hoard, we build wealth to give, to be generous, to find ways to reach out to those who are in need. And intimacy and sex are legitimate things. So we enjoy it in the godly way that God has put together and designed it to between a man and a woman, a husband specifically and a wife specifically in the context of marriage. And anything outside of that context is outside of the way God has designed it. And that can be hard because we know that There are some people who had sex outside of marriage that look at pornography, that are in homosexual relationships, that are doing, that are committing adultery. There are a lot of ways that we could say it's illegitimate, but what we can do is to say, well, this is the cistern that God has called us to draw deeply from. This is the well that he has for us. And so what does it look like for us to drink deeply of that love? And what does it look like for us to see that when we experience that that the blessing that is there when it's a husband and wife in the context of marriage is the way that God has ordained this to happen and the way that it's going to happen for beauty and blessing and fulfillment rather than for the words that we see that can be tempting and they can seem alluring, but they're not enduring. The next part, by saying yes, as we get close to the end, by saying yes to God's blessing, we're also saying yes to discipline, wisdom, and freedom. Verses 21 through 23 as we close. For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. 
See, it's for lack of discipline that we fall into these paths, and that's why we need discipline. Wisdom, why? Because the opposite of wisdom is folly. And in verse 23, when it says, led astray by their great folly, that's the very same word that in 19 and 20 is communicated as intoxicated. Here's what it means, is that we may become so captivated by the love that God has created for husband and wife and we could, or we could be so captivated about a godly way to fulfill a legitimate desire. Or, or we will end up ensnared by our sin and we will end up being held captive and led astray by it. That the same power of intoxication we see when it comes to love is the same power that we could be led astray by. If we're not disciplined, for lack of discipline, and if we're giving into folly rather than wisdom. And then I want to land on this idea. Verse 22 talks about how we are ensnared by those sins, how we are held back, and we are called to be free, not to be enslaved, not to be ensnared, and not to be held captive. In fact, Paul says it this way in Galatians 5. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Charles Kingsley, who's a pastor and, and theologian and um, an author, says it this way. There are two freedoms, the false, where a man is free to do what he likes, and the true, where he is free to do what he ought. Here's the example. If I were to say, you guys all have a free day tomorrow, you could do whatever you want, right? Some of you will be able to plan different things. You have some of you are like, I want to watch the Lord of the Rings marathon. I'm like, been there, done that, have fun. You know, it's like, there's these things where we could choose different stuff. But if I were to say, you're free to do whatever you want, and then you go in to your teacher at school and you tell them off, or you go into your boss and, and let loose of all the things you've been wanting to let her know or let him know, you're free to do that, but that's the wrong kind of freedom. That's what you think you want to do, but there will absolutely be consequences to those choices. So there's a freedom that says, I can do what I want to do and it feels great to get another plate, to have another time at home away or at work away from family, to work hard and get identity that way. I can find a way to want to, it feels good to just, you know, look a little bit longer or see how far I can go or what it can look like. But in the end, that freedom to choose that is not why we've been set free. It's not the free to do the way our, our, we would like to live. It's to live freely in the way that God has called us to. Because this freedom wasn't free. It was cost by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this freedom is the kind of freedom that lasts, it endures. That freedom is the kind that just seems good for now, feels good. I like how I am right this moment, but it's the lure that will ultimately fail us. And that freedom, whenever we put anything we want, when we want to do anything or choose something above God, that becomes our idol. And when that becomes our idol, we are then enslaved by our idolatry rather than given over to right relationship with God. So we need to cut those cords and take off those binds to experience the freedom, the freedom to choose the thing we ought to do not the freedom to put the idol we want to put up above God. Lastly, we've talked about how we need to say no to temptation through the first several verses. We talked about what it looks like to say yes to blessing. But here's the one that I, we all need to hear, myself included, because you might be listening to this sermon. You might, this doesn't affect me. You might be thinking, I don't, I'm not in a marriage relationship, so this warning to adultery doesn't impact me. 
You might say, I'm not even married yet. I don't plan on being married. You may say, hey, listen, I'm not struggling with the temptation right now. I'm doing pretty well. If that's you, then praise God. That is exciting to know. But here's the fact. All of us, all of us need to say no to temptation, say yes to blessing. All of us at some point or another need to say sorry to God. And here's why. Here's why. Because in your notes, we may not be guilty of idolatry, or sorry, adultery against a spouse, but we have all been guilty of idolatry against God. At some point, all of us, even those of us who've grown up in the faith and we follow the Lord, we've all put something above him. And if we've all put something above him, that means that we've committed idolatry and thought that another thing, something that we put forth above God deserves to be on the throne. God will not share his throne with anybody. And so we will experience heartache. We will experience pain. Why? Is it because he doesn't love us? No, no, no. He loves us so much that he will destroy our idols so that we see he's the one true God. And so we see here, uh, it's not on the screen, but you can write down Ezekiel 6, 9 and write down the book of Hosea. But Ezekiel 6, 9 says this. He's talking to his people. It says, then in the nations where they have been carried captive. Remember the word captive we just referred to. Those who escape will remember me. How I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me. Remember, which way are we turning? Which path are we on? And by their eyes, have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they've done and for all their detestable practices. See, you look at that and you say, God is a husband who loves his bride who's been adulterous. Or the book of Hosea. Well, the book of Hosea is that God calls Hosea to marry Gomer, who's a prostitute, in order to embody and to show how it is that Hosea is meant to still love Gomer even when she's unfaithful as a word picture for how God still loves his people even when we are unfaithful. We may not have committed adultery against a spouse, but we've all committed idolatry at some point against God. And he is our bridegroom. We are his bride. And so when we put anyone or anything on the throne, we have in a sense become adulterers against him. And so I say that because none of us escape this. We might be able to hear some of the sins at the very beginning of the temptations, and we might want to put people in our crosshairs. Well, at least I don't do that. At least I don't do this. At least I'm not this way. And what did we talk about a few weeks ago? The word of God especially shows us how whatever we want to put in the crosshairs, first we need to look in the mirror and see what are the ways that we have fallen short? What are the ways that we are not living the way God calls us to live. Because if we say we're sorry to God, the question that we had here is how far is too far? How, how far can I get before I crash? It's a wrong question. The right question is how far or what path are you on? But there is an instance in which how far is too far is a good question for us to ask. Do you want to know when that is? It's when we think, am I too far gone for God to still love me? How far is too far that now the arm of God cannot stretch out to meet me? How far is too far that I've done too much, been so wrong, and fallen so short that now God won't have me back? The answer to that, my friends, is that there is no far distance that's too far for God to bring you back. If you are willing to repent, remember, turn around. 
for to confess our sins because if we are righteous and just he will, to confess our sins, he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We've made new as far as the east is from the west. Our sin that was once scarlet and crimson is made white. We're able to experience this life. And what did we talk about earlier during the communion devotion? Life and life to the full. Because we realize that we're never too far gone, that if we can repent, confess, and give our lives to Jesus, he can make us new, he can wipe us clean, he can give us new life to remind us we are no longer slaves to fear, but that we can become children of God. Father, we thank you for who you are, and I pray, God, that as we talk about heavy things this morning, God, I thank you that whatever heavy burden we have as we think about this stuff, God, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, so that we could come to you and when things are uncomfortable in our lives, we can approach them through, the, through your word and recognize you don't stay away from the uncomfortable. In fact, you are the God of comfort because you, took, you sent Jesus to be out of the comfort of heaven into the rags of a manger to, to make sure that we have a right relationship with him so that we can experience the comfort of heaven as well. God, you have been tempted, Jesus, and yet you knew no sin. So you are the one who we can turn to. And God, I pray that as we talked about these heavy things, God, that you would do a work in us, that we would recognize that we are no longer enslaved or made captive by our fears, our temptations, or our sins, but that we have been made new, we have been made whole, we have been set free, because we are no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of God. And how captivating and beautiful and intoxicating the love is of the Father, that we may be called children of God, And that is what we are. So God, if there are some here who don't have that relationship yet, stir within them. Call them home. Let them know they're not too far. And if there are those of us who need to confess, may we confess. May we take away the crosshairs of looking at other people's sins and look in the mirror. May we take out the plank in our own eyes so we can help others with the speck in theirs. We confess our sin, God. We praise you. Because you've brought us no longer slaves to fear, but to be children of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.